episode 145. An interview with Hercules maintainer Josh Jensen. To give a bit of context to what Josh Jensen discusses with me, I've got a potted history of the Lockheed C-130 Hercules for you. The Douglas DC-3 and its US Navy version, the R-4D, received a lot of coverage in the series to date, and justifiably so. Its large internal space, uninterrupted by a wing spar due to Jack Northrop's ingenious design contributions, made it an excellent match for the aerial transport and photographic surveying needs of Operation High Jump. It's going to receive a lot more attention as the US Navy engages in the first Operations Deep Freeze in the wake of the IGY. Companies such as Basler deserve their name on the airframe after they zero-time the wings and empennage, lengthen the fuselage and replace the radial engines with PT-6 turbines, keeping what are sometimes 85 and close to 90-year-old airframes flying. The basic Douglas design is still a regular sight in Antarctic skies and on Antarctic airfield skiways. But another airframe looms large in the ice coffee offing, that of the Lockheed Hercules. Where transport aircraft through the Second World War mostly comprised airliners seconded to military service or adapted on the production line to incorporate larger doors and stronger floors, the Hercules was designed, from the ground up, as a tactical transport airframe. It's not the only aircraft to benefit from lessons learnt in the development and use of assault gliders during the Second World War, but it's the most successful airframe to apply those lessons, and its ubiquity, its 70-year and counting production run, and its future prospects make it the most successful design operating in that niche. Forbidden from developing military airframes by the terms of the Versailles Treaty, Germany gained a lot of experience with gliders in the years between the two world wars. This experience led to several companies, including DFS, Gotha and Messerschmitt, making glider transports, ranging from small units capable of carrying eight troops, through to the massive Messerschmitt 323 Gigant, one of the largest flying objects of its day, capable of carrying small armoured vehicles. Coupled with solid rocket boosters and a range of sometimes extremely dangerous tow plane arrangements, Luftwaffe gliders aided in several highly successful airborne assaults. There were also some catastrophic counterparts involving the Gigant on the Eastern Front, but Allied intelligence paid attention to the successes and began pressing for glider designs from the United States and United Kingdom aircraft industries. The American Waco design and the British Horsa and Hamilcar adopted the best features of German assault and transport gliders. A low-set cargo floor that's easy to load and unload, large doors through which cargo or troops can move quickly, a high-mounted wing giving good ground clearance for trucks and personnel working to load and unload the payload, high aspect ratio wing for the best glide ratio, and short undercarriage legs to keep the low-set cargo floor close to the ground. Part of the brief for assault gliders, necessarily single-use machines, required they make use of non-strategic materials as much as possible, so they comprised a lot of wood and fabric components. Allied forces successfully employed assault gliders in the liberation of Europe from Nazi occupation, and military planners began examining the next development in military glider design. The Chase Aircraft Company of the United States designed an aluminium glider for repeated use transporting troops and small vehicles. 
where its predecessors featured clamshell doors at the nose or breakaway sections of the fuselage to facilitate quick loading and unloading. The XC-29 featured an upswept tail, beneath which a cargo ramp formed part of the door, offering access to the cargo deck. By the time prototypes began test flying in 1950, the day of the assault glider already passed. No one wanted it. The Chase Aircraft Company bolted two radial engines to the wings and found they'd accidentally made the first really good cargo transport aircraft. Everything mentioned as a benefit to an assault glider served equally well in this new, powered paradigm, and the rear cargo doors and ramp allowed the newly minted C-123 provider to drop entire pallet loads of cargo by parachute. I mentioned in an episode about Bird that variable pitch propellers came on the market in the 1930s, allowing pilots to modify the angle at which a propeller blade meets the air to best suit the needs of takeoff and cruise. The same mechanism offers scope to turn the propeller blades past neutral and thereby to provide reverse thrust too. Applying this to their cargo plane, the engineers at Chase managed to shorten the landing rollout considerably, allowing the provider to operate from far shorter runways than equivalent-sized predecessors. Chase went bust because the boss was grifting the US government in a contract for manufacturing the Fairchild C-119, a competing airframe with less of a future because of the drag-inducing twin tail booms by which its designers offered truck access to a pair of rearward-facing clamshell doors which couldn't be opened while in flight. Chase went to the wall off the back of its fraudulent pricing model, and a substantial United States Air Force contract for C-123 providers went to Fairchild, which manufactured the far superior competitor product in parallel with its own short-lived C-119. While it's more a matter of design convergence in most cases, almost every tactical transport since then followed the pattern laid out in the C-123. Lockheed applied that mode to its design for a larger airframe powered by four turboprop engines, which beat out competing designs from Boeing and Douglas, eventually receiving a substantial government contract and giving rise to the C-130 Hercules, the prototype first flying in 1954. Many aircraft look similar because the Hercules shape is the equilibrium between payload, range and utility in a tactical transport airframe. The Douglas Cargo Master and the short Belfast look so similar, it's hard to spot their not a Hercules until up close. Soviet, French and Italian equivalents carry design elements that make them easy to differentiate at a distance, but the mode holds there too. High set, high aspect ratio wing, short undercarriage set close to the fuselage, low set cargo deck wide enough to receive palletized loads, a rear access ramp that can open in flight, turboprop engines capable of providing reverse thrust on landing. Hercules first entered Antarctic service as part of Operation Deep Freeze, the US Navy support program for America's presence in Antarctica. Lockheed developed a ski system for the Hercules undercarriage for use in Greenland and Alaska, and the same system served in landing the big planes on Antarctic snows. While new engines, New propellers and new avionics and instruments make present-day Hercules stronger, longer range and more efficient than those models rolling off the Lockheed production line in 1955, they're recognisably the same design. By getting the basics right and leaving space for development over time, Lockheed sold over 2,000 Hercules airframes, 
and counting, to large swathes of the world's military forces, and no competing design looks set to knock the C-130 off its pedestal in the near future. The Royal Australian Air Force bought and employed Hercules almost as soon as they came available, so they've been part of my aerial landscape since I can remember. My father flew in them as part of his national service, and I flew in them as part of my Antarctic logistics. I don't know if my children will follow paths that see them needing air transport from unprepared runways, but if they do, it's highly likely a Hercules will fill the need for them too. I recently corresponded with a Hercules crew chief who worked on LC-130 Ski Hercules in Antarctica. I lined up an interview with that crew chief, Josh Jensen, and here's the resulting dialogue. Josh, what first took you to Antarctica? I believe you said what uh, first brought me to Antarctica. Um, I was a volunteer from the Tennessee Air National Guard to help backfill the New York Air National Guard who had a shortage of airmen to cover their mission where they work for the National Science Foundation at McMurdo Station, shuttling uh, researchers and fuel and doing the other logistical carrying around of supplies on the continent. So basically they had a shortfall and I volunteered to take them up on that. And was was getting to Antarctica a goal that you'd held or just something that happened to you? It wasn't something that I specifically had dreamed of as a kid or anything like that. Um, But when I joined the Air Force, I did it at least in part for a sense of adventure and being able to travel around the globe and of course get paid to do it instead of having to pay out of pocket. So that was a uh, very good opportunity, I thought, to do something that's very few of my peers have been able to do. And when the Air Force deploys to Antarctica, what are your, your staging points? What's the process of getting there? Uh, well, it, even before I left, um, I had to get trained up on some unusual procedures that we generally don't perform on C-130s. On your regular C-130, you wouldn't. For example, refuel it with people on board. Typically, you have everybody offloaded from the aircraft. So even before I even started heading that way, I had to get trained up on some additional procedures in Nashville, uh, where I was based at the time. Um, And then once the time got closer to travel down there, we flew commercially from Nashville to Los Angeles, Los Angeles to Auckland, Auckland to Christchurch, and then from Christchurch, we took a C-17 to McMurdo uh, in Antarctica. So you, you joined the, the Ski Hercules actually at McMurdo Station? No, um, I did not fly to the continent on a 130. It seems like, and I was not part of this process, but it seems like it's uh, it's a pretty big undertaking that they do every year uh, to get down there, uh, to get the whole fleet of C-130s down there is probably kind of a timely endeavor it's not something that's super quick is what i'm trying to say uh you often run into you know mechanical snafus along the way and i could speak from experience flying to places like europe or uh, afghanistan or something like that that sometimes that's that can take up to a week depending on how many stops you have to make and what breaks along the way and then having to get replacement parts things like that so it uh I think once they get all the all the herky, all the herkies on the ice, uh, most of the shuttling of people and materiel that happens with a C seventeen. 
And how are the Ski Hercules um, different mechanically from a regular Hercules transport? They're basically the same thing other than the obvious, uh, the skis on the bottom of them, which just requires some additional effort. Uh, for There's some specialists that work in what's called the R&R shop, and they have to set these, set these, these uh, the landing gear up correctly to run with those skis. Um, it requires, you know, you to pay attention to a lot of additional hydraulic plumbing and things like that. Uh, of course, some of the other maintenance, mechanical maintenance procedures that are different when you have a ski bird. Uh, for example, we have to do diagnostic engine runs anytime you've changed a part on an engine on the C-130. Uh, you don't want the air crew to be the first person to test that out. So as, as maintainers, we would uh, take the C-130 and with the ski, with a, with a regular landing gear version, you take it to a place on the ramp that's specifically designed for you to run the engines up to power, and you would essentially tie the airplane down or put big blocks in front of the wheel so it can't move, or cages, uh, cages around the wheel so that it can't move. Well, when you have skis, there's nothing you can cage to do these maintenance runs and so in antarctica we would taxi off into deep snow retract the skis and let the main landing gear just sink into the snow and then you could effectively cage the aircraft that way and then you could run the engines up to power and everything like that do all your maintenance checks uh once you're done doing the engine run you then set the skis back down it pulls the landing gear wheels out of the snow and then you taxi back to your uh, spot on the ice so that's definitely different um but yeah essentially it's it, a c-130 is a c-130 there's so many different variants with weird little you know design interest uh, changes you know they came out in the 50s and so you know things like avionics and uh, you know antennas and Communications and navigation equipment changed over the years. Even engines and propellers have changed quite a few times over the years. Um, you know, just putting a set of skis on is not that big of a jump. It fascinates me that the design is coming up to 70 years old with the Hercules. Do you think that there's anything in the pipeline that's going to replace them? I guess this is my time to make my Glomar statement uh, that, you know, my views and experiences and opinions are mine alone and don't represent the Air Force or the DOD or anything like that. But in saying that, I don't really know what we will have that would replace the C-130. I know the Air Force was interested in trying something called the C-27, which is uh, like a smaller version of a C-130 with the twin engines, like a C-130 light. And I don't really think those ever caught on. Uh, the units that got them, I think, quit flying them shortly thereafter. I don't know what's going to replace the C-130. It's uh, it's one of those airframes that, in my mind, it's, it's going to go down in history. It's just a, a huge workhorse. It's done so much for military aviation and airlift. Um, yeah, I, I have no idea what they would replace it with. C-17 does a lot of the same stuff, but it doesn't do it as well on uh, maybe unimproved runways, dirt dirt strips. I've never seen a C-17 with skis on it, for example. You know, we've got them on the 130, but I, I have not seen, you know, they're not going to do that with the 17, I don't think. You mentioned in recent correspondence that you'd been ice fishing in Minnesota, and 
that seems like a magical thing to me, almost mystical. I, I know about it, but I've never experienced it. And being Australian, sort of, there's no one in my immediate circle that goes ice fishing regularly because we don't experience those sorts of temperatures. How, how big a shift was working at McMurdo for you personally with your existing experience of cold weather? Yeah, um, so I'd, I've worked on aircraft and, and as a mechanic. I grew up on a farm. Let's give you a quick backstory. I grew up on a farm in rural Minnesota, and there it can get very, very cold. I think Minnesota has the record for the coldest it's ever gotten in the continental United States. Um, so as a child, I'd, you know, like, like I'd said, I'd grown up ice fishing, snowmobiling, uh, doing other winter activities that most people would think are probably a little bit crazy unless you're from maybe some of the northern tier client, uh, uh, countries. I've also worked in some of the hottest places on Earth. I've been stationed in Saudi Arabia, and I've worked in New Mexico and Nevada. So working in the cold is just... The cold of Antarctica is just something you you uh, just try to make yourself used to as much as possible. Um, there's also, of course, like heater carts and things like that. It's, it's essentially a piece of ground equipment that you can call out to your airplane, uh, and it'll have like a large heater hose. And you use that to kind of keep your hands warm if you're doing something that requires a lot of manual dexterity. Um, you can also run duct work to you know, keep your feet warm, or if you're working inside an engine bay, to keep that, keep that stuff warm. So it's, it can be challenging, of course, but uh, it's, it's certainly not un undoable if you've ever broken down on a snowmobile in the middle of nowhere and had to change your own spark plugs or something like that when it's um you know below zero outside it's uh it's the same concepts you learn nefty lucy righty tighty is just doing it on a on a larger more complicated device than a snowmobile how do aircraft maintainers prevent the aircraft from cold soaking Okay, so uh, that heater cart that I just mentioned, it runs on uh, jet fuel. It's essentially like a, a heater that takes that jet fuel and it turns it into hot air, and you can attach different ductwork to it. Um, and some of those ducts come with what looks like a funnel, and you know the the aircraft itself is is fine, you know, in, in unimaginably cold circumstances. You know, for example, if it's 60 degrees Fahrenheit on the ground and you're flying at 35,000 feet, it's like negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit up there. So once the engines are running, they do fine with that, with, with the cold. The temperature is not a problem. It's just getting them started. And so getting them started, you want to use that heater cart with that duct work and the funnel, and you stick that on the nose cone of the propeller. Uh, the propeller governor inside there is what changes the pitch of the propeller. So it can take a big bite of air or a little bite of air, or it can go into neutral, which is called feathering the propeller, or go into reverse. And it's not where the propeller spins backwards or anything like that. It just changes the pitch to where instead of it pulling the aircraft through the air, it's now pushing backwards. Um, anyway, when those get cold, they have a bad tendency to roll these large rubber O-ring seals that are inside uh, the propeller governor, and when they roll, they will uh, allow a lot of hydraulic fluid to run out. And the hydraulic fluid is what uh, actuates the pitch change on those propellers. Aside from that, it also makes a nasty mess. And you, 
you as maintainers we go through great care to uh, try to clean up our own mess especially in somewhere that's as pristine as Antarctica you don't want to leave puddles of hydraulic fluid on the ground so we have to you know go out there with shovels and trash bags and shovel it up and shovel up the ice that has the hydraulic fluid on it and, and uh, put it in trash bags and dispose of it properly in the hazmat containers so long answer to your question is yeah heater carts to warm up the engines before you start the airplane once the airplane started up everything else is agnostic to the temperature it doesn't matter if it's 120 degrees fahrenheit outside or if it's negative 60 fahrenheit it doesn't matter very resilient i hadn't thought about the temperature difference with altitude before is there anything in the fuel tanks that prevents the the kerosene from jellifying as an aircraft is flying around in those sorts of low temperatures? Uh, the jet fuel that the C-130s run on, and, and well, the, it's called JP-8. It's very similar to uh, civilian av aviation jet fuel called uh, Jet-A. And it's chemically very similar to like kerosene or diesel fuel, but it doesn't have the paraffins in it that diesel fuel would have uh, naturally. And those paraffins, of course, at very low temperatures, they will do what's known as gelling up. Um, I suppose at like a microscopic level, uh, it looks like it looks like the paraffin's kind of forming snowflakes, and the snowflakes interlock. If you can imagine leaving a pan full of bacon grease out on your countertop after you're done frying some bacon, and the kitchen is cold, you know how it, how it congeals and coagulates. Uh, the jet fuel in modern aircraft is designed such that it is chemically resistant, resistant to that because the paraffins uh, have been removed. Uh, additionally, there are some components that use what's called a fuel heat exchanger, so they're cooled by the fuel. Um, like There's like engine oil heat exchangers, depending on type of aircraft, uh, that you actually use the fuel as a coolant too a little bit. So the side effect of that would be also warming up the fuel. So is there a minimum temperature at which Hercules are not allowed to operate if there is i don't i haven't seen it i, I only did one season in antarctica but i know the, the the c-130 guys they operate down there year in and year out and like i was saying if they can you know withstand unimaginably cold temperatures at altitude uh, i can't think of anything that would stop them on the ground from being uh, able to operate in those temperatures as well did you get an opportunity to leave McMurdo Station and have uh, an exploration of the surrounding area, or uh, Air National Guard lie down on the, the priority list for boondoggles? Let's see. So at, at McMurdo, we work six days a week, 10-hour days typically. So by the time you transport to and from, uh, it was called Pegasus Field at the time. I believe it's now Phoenix Field. Uh, anyway, by the time you get back from the airfield after a 10-hour day, you don't have a whole lot of time to to go out and explore much. Uh, but I would, in the afternoons, I would go for uh, a run up Observation Hill. Um, it's a, a hill right... right. I don't, it's hard to say whether it's in McMurdo or not, but it's at least adjacent to it, kind of between McMurdo and Scott, Scott Base, which is the Kiwis uh, Antarctic Research Base. Anyway, I would go for a run up Observation Hill almost daily. That was kind of my cardio for the day. Run up it and then walk back down. It's about 750-something feet, I believe. Um, also, I did get to go to Scott Base 
uh, and check out check out their uh, their their bar room and some of the facilities there. I think I had a couple beers with them, uh, had a cigarette, looked around the place, and then got a bus ride back to McMurdo. Uh, and one day I did fly to the South Pole. I went to the South Pole Station. Uh, one of our missions there was to deliver fuel to the South Pole. So as a crew chief, I would fill up the C-130 with about as much fuel as it could possibly get off the ground with. Uh, we'd fly with that from McMurdo to the South Pole Station. And with the engine still running, here's what where the uh, cold soak thing comes into play that you talk about. It's easier to just leave the engines running, uh, defuel as much fuel as you, you can while still allowing enough to safely make it back to McMurdo. And that fuel that we defuel at the South Pole would go into these large bladders that looked almost like giant waterbed mattresses full of jet fuel. And that jet fuel is what uh, the station ran off of, the generators and, you know, all all the life support systems, anything that would generate power, electricity, you know, water, uh, all that communications. It was all run off of jet fuel powered generators. So I got to go along on a mission for that. That was cool. So I got to go actually see the South Pole and everything. What's the most inspiring and what's the most harrowing thing that occurred to you in Antarctica? Boy, there's, I, there was so much there that was just unbelievable. Um, I, I was very fortunate to have have my time there. Um, I worked with a great crew of folks, a bunch of veterans that had been there multiple times, and you know, being able to you know work on my plane and see it take off, and then look off in the distance and see the smoke coming from Mount Erebus, or to look out across the ice and see the phenomenon called the the Fata Morgana. I asked a fellow crew chief, I'm like, what is, what is that mountain range? way out there across the ice and he goes that's not a mountain range that's a mirage and it's uh, called the fata morgana well, i thought that was you know very beautiful and not something a lot of people get to see um some other inspiring things were just the the willingness of the of the people there at mcmurdo to just show you what their piece of the puzzle was that they did uh i was there towards the end of the season the end of the antarctic summer and so one of my days, off days, I think it was a, it was a Sunday. That was our only off days or Sundays. Um, I just took a stroll around base, and I walked into Prairie Labs, and people showed me what they were working on at the labs. Um, I walked over to the, the Chapel of the Snows, uh, you know, sat down and played guitar for a little bit. I walked over to the greenhouse. There was a greenhouse and a ham radio set up, and people were, were cool to show me around that. Um, interestingly, I, I went and checked out the water treatment center and was fascinated to see how they, you know, desalinate ocean water and use it, uh, for the entire base. And so all watered with desalinated ocean water and, uh, you know, the waste treatment and all the things that have to go into that as well. The, so the water treatment plant was also the, the sewage treatment plant and they would, what still sticks out to me to this day is they would compact all the all the waste like the human sewage waste into large large bricks and those bricks would be you know sent off the continent on a shipping a container ship somehow um they showed me that uh from the tomatoes that the people would eat in the in the chow hall that would be inside the shit would actually sprout into little tomato plants and these giant bricks of shit that they would ship off it's very weird but uh 
<laughs> Very awe-inspiring, to say the least. And the most harrowing experience? I, I didn't really... I can't say that I had any real harrowing experiences. Um, my feet would get really cold while refueling the plane, but, you know, you deal with that. Um, riding Ivan the Terabus could be pretty harrowing if you, <laughs> if you uh, were, weren't paying attention and you got bounced the wrong way. You could hit your head on the, on the window or, you know, squish your kidneys or something like that. But really, I don't, nothing really stuck out to me as harrowing. Being really cold, that was about it. Is there anything else you'd like to include in the interview for Ice Coffee listeners? Uh, I, I appreciate you getting me on here and just letting me share a little bit about it. Um, if there's any, I don't know how many of your listeners are fellow Air National Guardsmen, but I know the New York guys that are always looking for, for volunteers to come down there and, and uh, if you're a C-130 maintainer, um, you know, maybe ask your, your flight chief to, to have them look into it, talk to the, the functional area manager for the aircraft maintainer world and see if they, uh, if they have any billets available for you to go down there. It's a, it's a adventure and a trip of a lifetime. I'd recommend it for anybody. Um, you meet a bunch of good folks and you'll do some very interesting work and you'll get a cool ribbon that not a lot of your fellow airmen will ever get. Josh. Thanks so much for your time, and um, I'm looking forward to staying in touch. And yeah, our correspondence to date has been a, a real source of joy to me. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Right. More interviews coming up soon. Still working on the preparatory episodes about the International Geophysical Year. There's a lot of material to get through, and I'm really excited about hooking my teeth into it. I think the IGY is going to comprise a huge tranche of episodes. So I'm cheating a bit, getting some interview episodes out, but also very excited about the material that I've been recording in interview in the past month. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Meersham is best avoided. <laughs>